0: Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Kimberly Atkins-Store, Jill Winebanks, and me, Barb McQuaid. Today, we'll be discussing the federal cases against Donald Trump, as well as the state court cases against Donald Trump. And finally, an interesting case that's been taken up by the Supreme Court about censorship on social media. And as always, we look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we dig into it, you know, I've been thinking about, we know that Jill has had a lot of interesting jobs in her life, but how about the rest of you? I am curious to know about either the most interesting job you've ever had or interesting side gig or side hustle you've ever had in your life. Joyce, how about you? Have you ever had any interesting jobs that you have not disclosed to the rest of us?
1: So you know, the best job I ever had was in law school. It was my work study job. And I worked in the law school bookstore at UVA, which was just this real small student run place um, for sort of essentials or or maybe just for law school books. So not very big, not a lot of traffic. And I would sit there for a few hours every morning doing the New York Times crossword puzzle. And as people came in and out, I would make them help me with their clues. And then when they bought what they needed, I would read them their horoscopes. Um, <laughs> it, was, it. It, you know, it was so much fun. I think I must have a little bit of the Starbucks barista inside of me, right? Or, or maybe it's the Walmart greeter. I'm not sure which. But I just loved that sort of um, simple, casual interaction with people.
0: Oh, that's excellent. How about you, Kim?
2: Yeah, I think the most unusual side gig I ever had was in college when I sang um, in a band and we actually gigged like we would we would uh, perform at some small venues in Detroit just like you know, bars, so, you know, you go into a bar and you see a band playing there. Sometimes we would do that. But we all, we wanted to be as marketable as we could be. So we learned a bunch of songs that are crowd pleasers, even if we wouldn't have performed them ourselves. And even um, adapted, you know, once we were hired to do, I can't remember if it was a wedding or a bar mitzvah, but we we took a uh, uh, September by Earth, Wind, and Fire, which we played. And we learned how to put have a Nagila on the end, you know? Like, you know, (laughs) we go straight from, you know, bye. Never was a cloudy day. I mean, it, it was really fun. I don't remember exactly what the oh, arrangement I was, love it. but like the crowd would always just like love it. Like whenever we did it, which was a lot of fun, but it didn't pay a lot, but it was a lot of fun. I did oh, that for I love it. years and, in college.
0: So you were you were the singer in a band. What was your genre? Were you mostly like pop covers was- or?
2: It was yeah, it was like pop and R and B covers. I was one Ooh. of two. It was a male singer too, and and me. So we we're kind of like you know, the the pop R and I I don't know who has a male and a female singer, um, like Fleetwood Mac or something. I don't know, oh, but we <laughs> would switch it. it up. But but to this day, when I hear some songs where I was singing backup, I still sing the backup <laughs> harmony because that's oh. I'm so used to that being my part when a song comes on.
0: Oh, that's awesome! And what was the name of
2: your band? We didn't really have, I was in different iterations of it. And we kind of just, you know, set our name. Like we did. I don't think we really had a name mm. in that
0: sense. You needed a good manager, Kim. I could have made you a star. We did. We were not
2: well managed. Yeah.
0: But, I, but huh? I bet you sounded great. Wow, that's fun. Thank that's, you. In Detroit, huh? maybe I attended one of your performances. You might have been there. We a wedding in bar the 90s. And I was singing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, Jill, we know you've had every job in the book. Anything that you have not shared with us about a job or a side gig? It's so hard to
3: remember what I've shared. I think I shared my surprise at learning that I had worked for the CIA.
0: Well, tell us us more about that.
3: Well, I (laughs) took a year off law school and I got a job as assistant press and public relations director for the Assembly of Captive European Nations, which was run by all the former prime ministers and heads of state in countries that had been absorbed by the Soviet Union, Hungary, Lithuania, Poland, etc And we did lobbying, and we had a, a bi-monthly newsletter. And I didn't know until I was researching my book, and I looked up whether they still existed and everything, that I learned that they were a CIA front. So I actually <laughs> worked for the CIA. Are you allowed to tell ah! us that? Are
0: you should, should you be telling us that? Do you have to tell I us that? I learned it online <laughs> so
3: anybody could look up the assembly and find it. It was really, I love and it. what I learned there also was that I really loved the advocacy part. I love the lobbying. And so I returned to law school, still not planning to be a lawyer, but because I wanted to be better at putting together persuasive arguments, which I thought law school was a good way to learn, and that I would be better at lobbying. I still didn't plan to practice law until probably my third year when I thought, oh, I kind of like trial stuff. I kind of like moot court. Maybe I should actually practice law. So it was it was a great place for me to be. And I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Wow. Well, I have nothing nearly so interesting. Um, when I was in college, I had a summer job at the, uh, the Mackinac Island, Michigan Town Crier, which was the Ooh. island newspaper. That was pretty fun. Mackinac Island is this little resort between Michigan's two peninsulas. It's in the the Straits of Mackinac between Lakes, Michigan and Huron. And in the summer, it's kind of a booming tourist economy and they have a little weekly newspaper. And there were three of us who were college students from the University of Michigan who did everything for the paper from selling the ads to writing the stories, taking the photographs. And in those days we actually developed them in a dark room and we posted them. And so um, it was great fun. It was also the site of my life's most embarrassing moment which was when the then governor's staff called on a Saturday and I was in the, the newsroom And they said, we've got a breaking story for you. The governor just hit a hole in one on the big grand hotel golf course. And I thought, this is my scoop. This is the big break I've been waiting for in my journalism career. I'm on it. So I got on my bike because there are no cars on Mackinac Island. And I raced to the site of the golf course. And there they were at like the fifth hole by now or something. And uh, I I ran out and I found them. And I had my camera. And I, I had the governor pose in various poses in his backswing and his follow through and took all these pictures. And uh it was very excited to report this big story. And then when I got back to the office, I discovered uh, the (laughs) five worst words in the English language. Uh, And those are no film in the camera.
2: Oh, Oh, no! no! (laughs) back in those days, you had to put
0: film in the camera and in my haste and excitement, I forgot. So my side gig was not such a success, which is probably why I ended (laughs) up in law school and not journalism. (laughs)
3: So, as we've already said, this was a very busy week, and we try not to do an all Trump show, but this time we have to have two segments about Trump one for the two federal cases and one for the Georgia case. And in terms of the Mar a Lago case, let's start with that. Um, Barb, it isn't charged in the Mar a Lago indictment, but we just had some new reporting about an incident at Mar Lago. It was breaking news on Wednesday, and it raises national security concerns, so I'm turning to you as our expert on national security. Reporting is that Trump shared potentially sensitive information about nuclear submarines, including how many um, nuclear warheads they carried and how close they could get to Russian subs without being detected. He shared it with a member of his club, a billionaire from Australia, who then spread it far and wide. The estimates are between 40 and 60 people. <laughs> so give us the details of what he shared, your expert opinion on the risk of his sharing such information, and why you think it wasn't part of the indictment.
0: You know, th- th- for, for those who say that Donald Trump is a walking national security risk, this is what they mean. Um, this is really unbelievable. And it is, if these allegations are true, this is a crime. This is an indictable crime. Now, whether charges will be filed, I don't know. But it is a crime not just to possess and or disclose classified documents. It is also a crime to disclose classified information. And it can be conveyed orally as it appears to have been here. In fact, it was this Australian businessman who said, he, I don't think he should be telling me this, who reported that he was told these things. Uh, so it's absolutely a crime. I, I will say though, it can be difficult to prove a case like this just because uh, there isn't any documentary evidence, and so you would have you know you'd have to have this Australian businessman testify about what he heard he doesn't know what level of classification this information is or whether it really is classified He just knows that Trump kind of looked around uh, and then sort of whispered it to him as if this is something I shouldn't be telling you so. Was it really classified or is Donald Trump really puffing about it? It's hard to know. But it related to nuclear submarines and the number of warheads that are on them and other details that are kept confidential. I think it even included uh, how far they can get or how close they can get before they can be detected. So the kind of information that could be used by a hostile foreign adversary to the detriment of the United States. So it's potentially extremely dangerous stuff. But I, I think one way it could be used against Donald Trump rather than in a standalone case, is as further evidence, you know, there's uh, something called 404B evidence that gets used in criminal cases. And that is evidence used to show that a person um, has a modus operandi or an intent to commit that crime. It could be used to show the reckless disregard with which he handled classified information. And so in the case that he's already charged in, in the Mar-a-Lago documents case, this could come in as just a little episode to just show how incredibly reckless it is. He's, He's a big talker and he boasts even at the expense of compromising national security.
1: Hey, Barb, can I ask you a quick question about that? Um, assume for the minute that you can get around the proof issues. Maybe that because of the nature of the information that Trump conveys to the businessman, the intelligence community can confirm that it's classified and the reporting says that the businessman then shared it with like some of his employees and journalists and other foreign leaders. So maybe you could um, get additional corroborating testimony from them. What my question for you is, is in that situation, would you charge it as a superseding count in the existing case, or might you not go ahead and charge it in a separate case? Because it's really not related to Trump's retention of classified documents. It's a whole separate sort of an incident. And then maybe you might get a judge who's not Eileen Cannon even.
0: Oh, that's super interesting. Um, I think you're right. In fact, technically, you know, there are rules about joinder, about when cases are properly joined together and when they should be apart. And if it arose on a different occasion and there's not sort of a common nucleus of facts, then it's really properly filed as a separate case. And what you, I, I, I sort of like your strategic thinking here. You know, there's concern about whether Alien Cannon is a truly impartial judge, in light of some of the favorable rulings that she's given to Donald Trump in the past, might it not be better to take a fresh start, right, uh, and get a new judge in a second bite at the apple? I, that's a really interesting theory. Um, you know, we'll we'll see. But I, I, I think that those proof issues on the oral communication might make this a case they're reluctant to charge. I also think they've got a lot on their plates already uh, in cases with Donald Trump as a defendant, and so it might be just too much for them to take on at this time. But I think that's a very interesting theory, Joyce.
3: It is an interesting theory, but I also think there may be a problem. They might be able to find out whether the information that he conveyed was accurate but you wouldn't want to prove that in court because, yeah, right. to the extent that you want to mm-hmm. keep it secret, that would be the worst thing you could do. So I think that might be an impediment. But yeah, you know, you, you know, know what know. that's
0: called, by the way, Jill. The, is what the the Barbara Streisand effect? Do you know about that? You know what that no. is? No. What is that? So I this is in my book. Um, the Barbara Streisand effect is she was angry because some photographer took a picture of her private home, like in Malibu or something, and um, put it on the internet. And so she was really mad, so she sued him. And as of the time she filed the lawsuit, only like four people had looked at it. But once she filed the lawsuit, like four million people looked at it. Right. <laughs> so you know, be careful what you highlight, uh, lest you make the problem worse. And that is known as the Barbra Streisand effect. So I agree with you that in a case like this, they may not want to go through a case that will just highlight these facts because of the Barbra Streisand effect.
3: Right. So let's go back to the actual case that was filed um, and Judge Cannon, who is the judge for that case. Well, (laughs) it is sort of fun because the Trump team just filed a motion to delay that trial from May of 2024 (laughs) to two months after the D.C. federal case election. I'm sorry, not to two months after. It was set for two months after the federal elections case. But they wanted to lay it until after the 2024 elections. Convenient. So, Joyce, would you sort of talk about that, analyze the basis for their motion, the likely or the unlikely chance of success, and what would the domino effect be if that gets moved?
1: Yeah, so this is such an interesting situation and and not particularly unexpected, right? Because this is Donald Trump asking a judge to delay the moment when he will have to face accountability in a legal proceeding. It's pretty much on brand. Um, The rationale for the motion is that Trump's lawyers say they have not received all the records that they need to review to prepare his defense. And, you know, those sorts of things happen. Sometimes a little bit of extra time is necessary. But the government says that all of the discovery was essentially completed yesterday on Friday, October 6th. And so it doesn't really look like there's a problem here. But here's the bottom line. Even if there's some merit to what Trump's lawyers are saying and some extra time is needed, the timeline here is really illustrative. It's now October of 2023. Trial isn't scheduled until May of 2024, months off, almost a year off. And Trump's lawyers say that they need until at least mid-november but preferably December of 2024 which just conveniently happens to fall <laughs> after the election is over um e- you know even if everything that they say about the government delaying in discovery is true that request is crazy there are months here before the trial is scheduled where that could be worked out they've not offered any reason that it can't be worked out if the judge thinks the government has been dilatory, she could enter an order tomorrow and give the government three weeks to fix its problems or face having some of its evidence excluded. There are a lot of ways that um, uh, to handle this that don't involve denying justice to the American people. Um so if this was any other judge, I would feel safe predicting an outcome, but it is Aileen Cannon. She does not seem concerned about delay in this case, so I'm not going to predict, but she has entered a stay on some of the SEPA deadlines, the classified discovery deadlines, while all of this is in play, which just seems absolutely nuts to me. Um cascading schedules if she does go ahead and delay the trial. you know Part of Trump's justification for the delay here is that he's got all of these other tight trial timelines. His lawyers are very busy people. Um, But all of the judges have been in communication. There's been some reporting on that. They seem to have carefully scheduled the cases around each other so that they don't overlap. And, And this seems like a particularly poorly taken complaint by Trump. But one interesting thing that could happen. Let's just say that Eileen Cannon is true to form and she does give him a delay. Then there's all of a sudden this big open block yeah. of time that's been um, held in May. And some other judge might decide to insert an additional proceeding in
3: there. So um, you know, be, be careful of what you ask for, right? Absolutely. I think that is the absolutely right premise. But somehow it made me think about the fact that Donald Trump showed up in New York for the first few days of his fraud trial. And I have believed that the only reason he showed up is because he was supposed to be deposed. And it was his way of delaying the deposition. The deposition was now set for next week. And guess what he did? He got rid of that case. He was the plaintiff against Michael Cohn. And rather than be deposed, he gave it up. So he uses different delay tactics for sure. But Kim, I want to move to the D.C. federal elections case, which is set for trial in March of 2024. And that would have been, or may still be, hopefully, two months before the Mar-a-Lago trial. And since your home is now D.C., we want to talk about the broad outline of the motion that Trump's lawyers filed to dismiss the elections case. They based the motion on a sort of a a never directly decided claim of total immunity for anything Trump or obviously any president does during his presidency. And it sort of reminded me of what Nixon said to David Frost in an interview that if the president does it, it's not illegal. Uh, No court has ever held that. Uh, But so, Kim, if you could talk
2: about What's going on in that case and what this motion is based on? Yeah, so much of what we talk about in this context, Jill, as you know, it references back uh, in my mind, and I know yours too, about um, the Watergate era. But there is not, in fact, a court case called Nixon v. Frost, which holds that. (laughs) There is nothing that holds that. Still, uh, in a 52-page motion, uh, Trump's attorneys suggest that he has presidential immunity from prosecution for actions performed within the, quote, outer perimeter, end quote, of his official responsibilities. And and those are acts that according to them, and I'm reading from this motion, okay? This is me reading from the motion. These are acts that are from, quote, the heart of his official responsibilities as president, um, in in doing so meaning in bringing this action uh they claim the prosecution does not cannot argue that the that president trump's efforts to ensure election integrity (laughs) (laughs) and to advocate for the same were outside the scope of his like what you know how these attorneys have already gotten in trouble for making arguments that are absolutely ridiculous and have been admonished to like act like you know, serious attorneys in the proceedings before them. I wouldn't be so uh, surprised if this is met with that kind of reaction. First of all, there is no like, it, even if you're trying to say the outer perimeter of anything that a president might touch, that would be really broad immunity. I, I don't think that's anything uh, that anyone has compl- contemplated for a president. Secondly, he wasn't trying to ensure election integrity. He was trying to overturn the results of an election. And even though, like we talked before about the Hatch Act, and that's how Mark Meadows, really his claim of um, immunity really got torched because you're not allowed to do campaign stuff. You're, you're federally um, prohibited from doing campaign stuff from the White House. Well, the president is not covered by the Hatch Act. But the idea of it remains in place that you could not supposed to be doing campaign stuff. Campaign stuff is never within your official uh, duties. That's why you see presidents just like everybody else step outside before they make uh, phone calls about their campaign, you know, do things from headquarters instead of doing things from the White House. This is a pretty foundational principle. And if I mean, this claim that all of this is covered under some sort of imaginary privilege is just nonsense.
3: Man, it sure is. And Barb, um, does this ignore his obligation when he is told that there's no fraud that would change the results um, to prepare for a peaceful transfer of power? And isn't this, you know, Kim mentioned that the Hatch Act doesn't apply to him, but it did apply to Mark Meadows. And the court said that was one of the reasons they wouldn't transfer his case to federal court because it was not within his, the ambit of his responsibilities,
0: yeah, if you read the uh, motion here, it um, it does a little sleight of hand because it talks about, you know, what Kim was just saying, this idea about the outer perimeter of the official responsibilities of the president. And I think when we think about what the president's duties are, you know, I think sometimes we think of it as this all-powerful leader of the country who controls everything and can do whatever he wants, but that's not right. Uh, and then they talk about how the president has, and they say, the sacred obligation, which is sort of creepy to refer to it as sacred because right because there's a separation of, of church and state in our constitution <laughs> yeah, but that's the, so the founders anymore. the founders tasked the president and the president alone with the sacred obligation of taking care that the laws be faithfully executed that is true but it is the federal laws that should be faithfully executed and that's why the executive branch has all these agencies and law enforcement uh, to execute the laws and take care that it be faithfully executed but the administration of elections is a uniquely state role. And because of our system of federalism, the president cannot interfere in state roles, including the fair administration of elections. So this is completely outside of that perimeter. Um, And what the judge talked about in the Meadows case was that When Meadows got involved in Georgia, just as if the same argument could be said about Trump being involved in Georgia, he was not governing. He was campaigning. So we need to think of Trump wearing two hats. One is his hat as the president of the United States who has this duty to take care that the laws be executed. That's one job. But then this other job is he is a candidate for president. And when he's calling down to Georgia and saying, how about finding me some votes and all that sort of stuff, that is wearing his hat as a candidate. He is involved in campaign activity. So none of that is protected. By any of this immunity. Uh, and as you say, Jill, what he does have a duty to take care to do, to execute the laws, is to do things like tell the people in the Capitol to go home on January 6th. I think he's got a duty to do that um, and to ensure the peaceful transfer of presidential power. He doesn't even show up at the inauguration of Joe Biden. What a shameful omission that is. And so um, I, I think this, this motion is doomed to fail.
3: So Joyce, let's follow this up because The argument from the Trump team raised some questions for me, even though I read it carefully. But I couldn't tell whether they're arguing for total immunity for anything he did while he was president, skipping whether it was part of his job as president, or whether they're just ignoring the difference between official presidential acts and candidate conduct and the differences between culpability in civil and criminal cases. And you are an appellate expert, but looking at the cases, they're citing a lot of civil liability cases, not anything that has to do with criminal conduct. And um, so, you know, if we look at Nixon v. Fitzgerald, it's civil liability for acts. And uh, the same thing as in the Clinton case, that was something he did before he was president. Um, So can you clarify what these previous cases say and what Trump's lawyers are arguing? And um, I recommend everyone read your substack about the interlocutory nature of this motion, and I know you'll explain that uh, to our audience. And we should put your civil discourse newsletter in our show notes so that they can read the full explanation. Um, you know, thanks, Jill. That,
1: that's nice. And and I have to say, this is a 52-page motion that they filed. I read it carefully Um, I had conversations with some friends who were Supreme Court advocates, because I think in some ways it's difficult to understand. You're absolutely right when you say it's confusing. I didn't like it structurally. I had to bounce back and forth to try to make their arguments for them. And I don't say that critically. I mean, I just say it was tough for me to figure out what their precise argument was. Uh, so, so, look, I have long believed that we would see this executive immunity, this presidential immunity argument made here. It's clearly the argument, although it's, it's maybe a little bit um, of a stretch, to be generous. It's still a legitimate, non-frivolous constitutional argument. And I thought perhaps they would make it in a way that would be appealing for the Supreme Court. This this argument is a swing and a miss in front of Judge Chutkin. But there is um I think a Federalist Society inspired belief in a in a I won't say imperial presidency, but something that's not that far off from that. You'll remember that Bill Barr, when he was auditioning to be the attorney general, he wrote this memo that got circulated in the White House and at DOJ about what was called a unitary executive a powerful president. And of course, Donald Trump seized upon that because Barr opined that the president could not be prosecuted for obstruction of justice, no matter what Bob Mueller said. That was pre-Mueller report. And so that's part of this very appealing conservative philosophy of expanding the power of the presidency. So it's always seemed like there would be some option that Trump's lawyer, Chris Keyes, who comes out of sort of um, federal society origins, was Florida's solicitor general. There their top appellate lawyer, might position that sort of an argument to go to the Supreme Court. They are absolutely arguing for total presidential immunity. Uh, Under their theory, anything that a president does while he's in office would prevent him from being criminally prosecuted. And of course, that's not the law. If a president commits a murder or robs a bank while he's in office, I don't think anyone would argue that that conduct was insulated by the office that he held. Um, And similarly, Trump is not immune from prosecution for the three conspiracies and and the one substantive act that he's charged with. You know, you flag the Nixon case, and it's a very interesting case because Nixon is a civil case. It's about Mm -hmm. civil immunity for a president, There is no case law that says presidents in criminal cases have immunity. So that is an undecided issue of law that a court here will have to address. But even if a court does decide to extend that immunity to criminal cases, and there are good reasons not to, An effort to overturn an election just isn't part of a president's job, as Barb has pointed out. It's not even in the outer periphery of it. Trump tried to meddle in the outcome of state elections. Yes, a president has some legitimate role to play in ensuring that the election itself has integrity. But going down to to Georgia and asking the Secretary of State to find him the precise number of votes he needs to win an election that he has lost is clearly out of bounds. So Trump's lawyers are essentially arguing that presidents are above the law. It will not fly with Judge Chutkin, but here's the risk that this motion creates for the process. Uh, Trump will be entitled, if Judge Chutkin rules against him, to take an interlocutory appeal. That's an appeal before the case is tried. And that's really unusual. In criminal cases, virtually anything that that a defendant wants to kibitz with an appellate court about has to be delayed until after there's a conviction for the pretty obvious reason, right? Why waste the time to take an appeal if there's not even gonna be a conviction? So pretty much everything gets put off. However, immunity issues do not get put off, and there is fairly fairly solid case law, both in the D.C. Circuit and in the Supreme Court that would warrant an interlocutory appeal here. Interlocutory appeals take time, it would go to the D.C. Circuit, it would undoubtedly go to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and, and that could get this trial sidetracked unless those courts are prepared to act very
3: quickly. Well said. Although, did you say kibbutz with the court about? Yeah, you you know,
1: sometimes defendants want to go kibbutz with the court,
3: right? They have beef. I never thought of it that way. But I I also want to point out when you said the Nixon case, it's Nixon v. Fitzgerald that we're talking about, the the civil case, because there is a U.S. v. Nixon case, (laughs) which is a criminal case, but it only deals with whether a president has to comply with a subpoena in a criminal case. And... It may give us some guidance as to what would come next, as to whether someone could be indicted. And the Justice Department, as we all know, and as I think is wrong, has long maintained a policy that a sitting president cannot be indicted. But this would expand that so far beyond because it has always been believed that he could be indicted for anything he did during or before his presidency or after once he was out of office. And I hope that we get back to that sometime. But um, Kim, do you think Trump's conduct charged by Jack Smith in this election case is conduct even remotely within his role as president? Um, The the, um, need to separate candidate activities versus official presidential acts? And I think that's being ignored in
2: the argument put forward um, by his lawyers. What yeah, I mean, think? I I think that even if you're giving, y- you even have to give this a very, very generous reading even to get to the political, right? Because one fundamental thing that we have mentioned before is that you do not get privilege to commit crimes. Right. He's accused of criminal behavior, criminal interference with election processes. As you all have rightly pointed out, that is plainly in the purview, carrying out elections is plainly within the purview of states. So that was not his job yeah, he can campaign, he can urge people to vote, he could do all that stuff, but he's got to do it outside the White House. There is nothing here that he did was privileged, getting on the phone and demanding just enough votes be found in order to push him over the the limit, in order to change the results of the election, nothing. Everything that's alleged is illegal. So no, none of this is privileged, that this is going to fail. Absolutely. So one
3: more motion I want to cover because it's one of my passions now. There has been a motion filed asking for cameras in this federal trial, and I wrote an op-ed in the Detroit News advocating for cameras in all courts uh, because of the values of the public, but it is especially appropriate in a case of this magnitude. Do any of you think the motion will be granted? Should it be granted?
0: Well, I guess I would say, Jill, and I saw your piece in the Detroit News. It was very compelling. I think there is a strong public interest in seeing what goes on in these cases, especially in light of Donald Trump's propensity for disinformation and to spin things in ways that are not accurate. And so, I think for the public to see for themselves, it would be very valuable. That being said, I'd be very surprised if they grant it, just because there is this very strong tradition in federal court against cameras in the courtroom. Most of the judges are I've talked to about this topic are adamantly opposed to it. I think they worry that it will somehow uh, diminish the Uh, you know, dignity of the courtroom in some way. So I'd be surprised if it happens. I don't know if others disagree.
1: You know, federal judges live in a little bit of an ivory tower, and I think they're (laughs) not always in in touch with public opinion. And this issue really demonstrates that. The Judicial Conference of the United States, which is the convening body, the the sort of um, ruling body for the federal judges nationwide, has refused repeatedly, and even despite a a successful pilot project, to bring cameras to the court. So, Whether or not Judge Chutkin has the authority to do this, I think technically she does. It would be sort of weird if she exercised it, given all of the dynamics here. I think it's wrong for John Roberts, the Chief Justice, to keep this burden on her shoulders. And I think this is a moment where the Chief Justice of the United States, or certainly the Judicial Council, should recognize the compelling public interest in the moment and should authorize cameras in the courtroom. I think it's a dereliction of duty for them not to do that
2: in this situation. So I agree with everything Barb and Joyce just said. I would limit that though to Donald Trump's test, you know, or everyone, all the witnesses' testimony happening in live court with the witnesses under oath. One thing that I think that the courts need to stop is allowing Donald Trump to do his little impromptu press uh, gaggles outside the doors of the courtroom, spreading lies and misinformation. That's been happening this week in New York. And I think that that is dangerous. It is outrageous. I think he should be held in contempt for doing that because he is trying to usurp uh, the power of the courts. He's trying to turn people's faith away from the courts. He's really trying to destroy an essential pillar of our government and democracy and how judges are putting up with that crap is beyond me. So, I think we're pretty much out of time. but So, I'm just going to
3: mention that these weren't the only motions this week. There was uh, a motion to recuse Judge Chutkin, which was lost. There was a motion to dismiss the New York criminal case, the business records for hush money to Stormy Daniels, on the grounds that it took too long to indict him. It's not a, a statute of limitations Case It's just it took too long. And then there was a motion to to delay the civil fraud trial, which is, of course, underway. Um, And I don't think that will happen. But I think it's something that we all need to watch.
1: Next, we turn to Georgia, where in just over two weeks, jury selection will begin in the first trial in the Fulton County case. That seems really fast. There will be a number of hearings in the next couple of weeks as the judge sorts out pretrial issues. And in the midst of that, Barb, there's reporting that the district attorney has sent plea deal offers to a number of Trump's co-defendants. What do you make of that news?
0: Yeah, uh, that was interesting news. And I guess it's not surprising, really. I mean, this is about the stage when most often a prosecutor does send plea offers out to defendants. You know, j- shortly after arraignment, after you have sent all the discovery materials so that the lawyer can sort of assess the strength of the case. That is kind of a routine thing to send out plea offers to co-defendants. We had one accept the plea deal we saw last week, the first guilty plea. And boy, that's just got to have a powerful effect on the other defendants to see the deal he got, which is quite favorable. And to think about if I can get in the door now, I might be able to get away with out going to prison if I am willing to testify truthfully. So this is the time for those negotiations to occur. So this strikes me as a very expected, normal, and routine practice at this stage of the case.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I'm sort of waiting with bated breath to see if anybody else will take uh, the DA up on her offer. You know, Sidney Powell has to be thinking long about now about whether she wants to spend the next couple of decades in state prison in Georgia. And I've got to believe that the answer is no, if she's um, being sensible. But so... Jill, assuming that that first trial does start at the end of the month, it does feature those two lawyer defendants, Kenneth Chesbro, the cheese and Sidney Powell. And assuming that they don't plead guilty, they do go to trial. Trump will not be there with them. He's not being tried alongside them. Will we learn anything about Fonnie Willis's case against Trump or will that stay behind the curtain for now?
3: I think we will learn something about the case because they are charged in an overarching conspiracy that includes Donald Trump. And there's every reason to introduce the evidence about his role in this case. Um, and I think you're also right about Sidney Powell being in really big trouble because the person who pled or pleaded, depending on. Pled. I I'm, I'm a sign, firm, though.
1: firm believer of pled.
3: Okay. who? Whatever. Um, That was someone who is directly involved in a scheme that's part of the conspiracy that involved Sidney Powell. So he's going to testify against her and it's going to look really bad. So I think we're going to learn a lot about the overall case. And it may be that after that, a lot of the plea deals are going to start coming in, not only because people don't want to spend the money on defending but because they see the power of the evidence that's been presented.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, Fonnie Willis has said that her case is the same. Every time she tries mm-hmm. it, she's got to prove the full conspiracy. Some of the defendants may or may not like what they see once that evidence is is on the table. Um but so, Kim, we learned this week a little bit about the substance of that case and just how good it is. Um, the DA is going to call at least six witnesses who reside out of state. And we learned about that and some of the substance of their testimony, because this is unlike the federal government, where as a federal prosecutor, I could subpoena any witness nationwide um, and, and make them come in to testify. Fonnie Willis, if she wants an out-of-state witness, has to apply to the court for something called a certificate of need. It's sort of a subpoena substitute that then goes to a judge in the witness's state of residence for approval, and then it functions more or less like a routine subpoena. Um, What did you think was interesting in what we learned about the out-of-state witnesses she intends to call? Who do you think has interesting testimony to offer?
2: Well, I think they all do because the list includes people that are just uh, as essential to this alleged plot as uh, Chesborough, the cheese and Powell, the <laughs> Kraken releaser. Um, it begins with Boris Epstein, who we've talked a lot about. He was Donald Trump's top lawyer and, and one of his closest advisors. Um, and, and, you know, he's an essential part of this timeline. Now, the only... Um, The one of the potential hinges there is that it could take a while to get him to testify while his attorneys and the prosecutors work out to what extent the attorney-client relationship may play uh, in his testimony. But we'll we'll see that happen. There are also three Republicans who were involved in this whole false uh, slate of electors scheme, uh, including one Lawrence Tabas, who is the former head of the Pennsylvania. GOP, who didn't actually sign the document, like he pulled out of this scheme before actually signing them, which s- signals to me that he understood w- what the potential liability was here, that this was phony. And I think that his testimony would be very interesting. And also, finally, you have both Lynn Wood and Aaron Vick. These were people who... Uh, hosted Powell and other allies, including Mike Flynn, uh, at the Carolina estate of Wood. They all gathered together uh, to draft a plan to seize Dominion voting machines. So I think they all will have a lot to say that would be of a lot of interest to uh, both the prosecutor and the jury in this case.
1: Well, I I know we'll all be waiting to see if this case really goes out to trial on October 23rd, like it's scheduled to do, and we will be back with more then.
2: So the new Supreme Court term is underway, and of the many cases on its docket includes a battle between social media giants and state Republicans in Florida and Texas who want to rein in what they call anti-conservative bias in those social media companies' content moderation policies. So Jill, I think our listeners know that these laws that were enacted in Florida and Texas and aimed at Twitter or X or whatever they call that, uh, and Facebook and other social media uh, giants, those laws were about politics, right? They weren't really about policies. And you you can weigh in on that aspect too. But what is the legal justification that they offer these state Republicans for having the right to try to regulate Facebook and X and other platforms like that? So it is definitely
3: political. This is so far as I can determine, there hasn't been any presentation of evidence that in fact there's any evidence to support an accusation that any platform is using point of view to censor conservative viewpoints on their platforms. Um, And that to me is sort of a missing element of this where they need to get that done. The court has taken up two questions in, there's two cases. And one is from Texas and one is from Florida, and there's a split in the circuits because one upheld a stay on the new law going into effect and the other did not. And so that's why it got to the Supreme Court. Um, The questions before the court are whether you are denying equal access to these platforms and whether you have to explain all of your rulings about whether or not – you have done this for illicit purposes. Um, and for me, the media does not have the right, according to what is being argued here, to deny public undifferentiated service. But of course, we know that, for example, in Mastercake, you can, <laughs> because if the platform doesn't like a certain viewpoint, their service can be cut off. Um, and in terms of it being a explanation required, the platforms are arguing that it is unduly burdensome and that is the standard. So I think before we can answer all these questions, we need a fact trial. But um, the the argument seems to be from the other side that this law violates the First Amendment by compelling publishing views that the platform doesn't agree to and that the reporting is burdensome. I find those arguments much more compelling than anything that is being argued on the other side. Um, and the other side is saying it's a public accommodation, it's a carrier, so they cannot dis- discriminate against any users. And of course, the um, the media platforms are saying it is not anywhere near like a public accommodation. And um, that you can't limit Publishing speech and they're saying, well, they the answer from the laws, the lawmakers is that we're not limiting your speech we're limiting you from limiting the speech of users of your platform. and the answer is you can't force anyone to publish or disseminate views that they don't approve of. Think about if it was applied to you Kim, as a uh, journalist with a newspaper. the newspaper doesn't publish every potential Letter that it gets, or any op ed that it gets submitted, you have a right to discriminate in who you will publish. And there was an argument made that, well, that's because there's limited space in a newspaper, and that's what makes it different, and that there's unlimited space on social media platforms. But I think when you get down to the fundamentals of the First Amendment and the right of the press and the right of free speech, that doesn't apply. And so I think the argument is pretty good on the side of the uh, complainants about the laws.
2: Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how this might apply to the free speech, uh, free speech, uh, realm in a little bit, but Joyce, uh, let's, let's go to you. Uh, Jill anticipated my question from to you, which is what the, what's the view of the social media companies? What do you think, uh, what is that? And what do you, who do you think has the better argument? Yeah, so it's such an interesting argument because the
1: companies are arguing that the Republican-backed measures in the states violate the free speech rights of social media companies by limiting their freedom to decide how material is presented and requiring detailed explanations for content moderation decision. And I think Jill has the perfect example here when she talks about how that would apply to you um, as a reporter you know, the the media, so they've actually formed into groups and they're represented by as sort of as, as group entities. They argue that the laws would impose onerous requirements and put the platforms at risk of being overrun by spam and bullying. That's maybe a little bit ironic when you think about it, because of course, Elon Musk on the site, um, formerly known as Twitter, is fairly aligned, I think, with what these uh, laws would seek to accomplish. And so it's I think interesting to watch this appeal progress and see if all of the parties will stay aligned the way they currently are. But although there are interesting arguments on both sides, as there often are in cases that reach the same the Supreme Court, the First Amendment principles seem to me very important here. And if the social media platforms were to lose this case and states were able to impose these sorts of rules and restrictions, I think we would be living in a country with a very different First Amendment environment when it comes to the media than what we've had traditionally. I think it would be a very disturbing development. And, you know, call me a hack-eyed optimist, I just don't think even the Supreme Court will go there.
2: So, Barb, the DOJ has weighed in uh, in in this case, as it often does, but a- and they are siding with the social media companies here. But But wait a minute. Didn't we just talk a couple episodes about the fact that the Biden administration has gotten in its own legal trouble because it stands accused of meddling in the matters of content moderation at these very businesses. So how does the administration thread that needle Barb?
0: Yeah, you know, they're really in a tough spot. It seems that everything that the executive branch has tried to do to try to address and mitigate this problem of you know, not just disinformation online, especially when it came to COVID and, you know, pushing some of these uh, uh, false cures and dangerous uh, preventative medicines. Um, They've been accused of censorship or, you know, heavy handed pressure about what to say and and content uh, pressuring about messaging. It's a really tough position to be in. You know, at, at, at one time, the Department of Homeland Security had opened this disinformation board to try to address these problems. It was part of the Department of Homeland Security, and it was open for like a week before they had to shut it down because the new director, who was a very accomplished cybersecurity person, was getting so much, so many threats and harassment that they had to shut it down. It's a really tough space in a country where we really deeply care about free speech and about, you know, government hands off my speech. But I think the government has an obligation to try to share important, accurate information. Social media is really just a messenger for getting information out there. And when they see these false claims on there, It seems like they have an obligation to flag that at the very least for some of these companies. I think where they may go astray is when they start getting very heavy handed and talking about things like, you know, veiled threats. If you don't, then this bad thing will happen. Or if you do, then this good thing will happen. Uh, You know, they do have a bully pulpit, they do work with private industry all the time. Uh, When I was in government, we would reach out to uh, the private sector about you know cybersecurity I- I- issues about export violations about various threats and telling them that you know we urge you to come to us when you see these kinds of things or uh, so there is a role to play in the government to work with private industry to try to make the country a better place and to protect public safety. But I think it's when it comes becomes heavy-handed or coercive that it could be problematic. And so I, I think we haven't quite figured out what the right balance is there in terms of what's the government's role.
2: Yeah. And back to the issue of the free press, you know, I'm really concerned about the potential free press implications of these cases because, you know, as Jill pointed out, yes, for the most part, newspapers like mine get very broad First Amendment protections, not just because of the limitation of space, but I think it's because that's what people traditionally think of when they think of the press. And one of the problems is, is we don't have laws or or interpretations of the Constitution that apply to new technologies like social media companies. But I still think it's really important for really broad First Amendment protections. I mean, think beyond newspapers, right? Even there is regulation of things like cable news networks or broadcast stations based on the scarcity of the bandwidth. But I still think the free Speech implications need to trump that to prevent people from, uh, pre- prevent lawmakers from trying to regulate them based on their content. And this is not a theoretical exercise. You remember there've already been candidates who have tried to run on doing things like saying they're going to make newspapers register if you know if they're uh, in office or do other things that really run afoul of the constitution and in the same way they're trying this gambit with the social media companies. To, am I alone in this fear, you guys? You are no, not. No, you're not.
3: <laughs> it's a very scary um possibility that they could prevail. And I obviously I think that the stay that was left in place is the correct decision that this should not be allowed. And one of the laws bars you from ever barring a candidate for office. Now think about all the crazy people who run for office.
1: Yeah. Donald and, Trump.
3: Yeah. Well Donald Trump and Robert Kennedy Jr. Um that is something that is total misinformation, and if that isn't controlled by the platform, who is going to control it? And you know, if we can go back to what happened with the Biden administration, and they're being told that they were meddling uh, and pressuring, I really didn't see any evidence that they were pressuring. I saw evidence that they were calling up and saying, "If you'd like to know the facts, here's what is true and correct." and Facts, you know, I used to argue before a jury, you know, you have to wait till you hear both sides because no matter how thin the pancake, there's always two sides to it. Well, now that there's alternative facts, I no longer think that's true. I think there is only one set of facts and the rest are just garbage. And so we have to be careful about that.
0: Well, now comes the part of the show that is our absolute favorite, the part where we answer your questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or threads or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, please keep an eye on our threads feeds throughout the week where we will answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes to us from Katie in Arkansas. And the question is, why do vicious personal verbal attacks on the prosecutor and judge by Donald Trump not lead swiftly to large fines, gag orders, and possibly some detention to get the point across? You know, we've all been wondering this. In fact, Kim, you wrote a nice piece about this in the Boston Globe this week. Can you answer that one for us?
2: Yes, yeah, so we have seen both state and federal prosecutors ask for and in some cases be granted gag orders against the former president uh limiting what he can say publicly about the case that's going lo- on limiting what he could say about certain individuals. And that is the first step to me in what needs to happen in this case if the shenanigans that Donald Trump seem to be engaged in continue, which I think he ought to be held in contempt. Now, I can understand why prosecutors and judges may be um, wary of seeking and holding Donald Trump in contempt, because what he's trying to do is disparage the entire, entire legal system, because right now he sees that as his adversary. And we know time he sees an av- adversary, he thinks he needs to destroy it, even if it is a branch of our government. And that that is really dangerous. But by being held in contempt and by, you know, having to pay a fine or even being put in jail, what that will do is only reinforce his claim of being a victim here. And I can see a wariness to sort of play into his hands. I personally don't care. I I care more about the administration of the judicial system. And what he is doing is trying to interfere with that. If I had a client that was doing that, my client would be in jail. And I think that he should face the exact same kind of penalty penalties as everyone else.
0: I agree with all of that. Uh, Our next question comes to us from Bill in New Jersey. And Bill asks, what happens if Donald Trump doesn't pay E. Jean Carroll? How is non-payment penalized? Joyce, you've been following that case carefully. What's your thought there for Bill?
1: I have been. And Bill, it's a really great question, right? Because Donald Trump is notorious for not paying his debts. Um, Typically, in a, a case when there is a judgment against you, as there is against Trump, and you want to take appeal, you have to get what's called an appeal bond. And that serves as your promise to pay. You pay a certain percentage. And if you don't pay up at the end of the appeal, if there's still a judgment against you, then the bond acts as your surety. Donald Trump, however, did not file, did not get an appeal bond. He paid $5 million directly into the Southern District of New York. So Eugene Carroll will get paid one way or the other. What I'm so fascinated by here is why didn't Donald Trump get a bond? Perhaps he couldn't satisfy some of the conditions. We don't really know.
0: But it is a very intriguing question. Hmm. All right. And our final question comes to us from Fran in Portage, Michigan. And Fran asks, if a person has been convicted of a crime and must make restitution, and if that person is pardoned before the restitution is made, is that person still required to make the restitution? Jill, what do you think?
3: I love the question. I hate the answer because I think (laughs) the answer is a pardon is irrevocable and final, and a pardon means you're pardoned, and therefore you would not have to make restitution. That would be really sad in all of these cases. So let's be glad that some of them at least are in uh, state court, because my answer pertains only to federal trials.
0: Spoken like a true prosecutor. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Winebanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw@politicon.com, or tweet them or thread them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Thrive Cosmetics, Olive and June, Calm, and Helix. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. And go to Politicon.com slash merch to buy our shirts, totes, and other goodies. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm sure Greg knows this, but, you know, the nickname of the Everton soccer team are the Toffees which is so funny and so British. Sorry, it is time. so British! And the reason they're called the Toffees is like 100 years ago when the club was newish, there was a little toffee store down the street, a candy store. And um, during the uh, – do they call it halftime or do they call it intermission? Maybe they call it intermission. Uh, the Toffee lady yeah. would come and walk through the crowd and toss toffee – to the fans <laughs> but of course at some point like someone caught one in the eye so she can't throw the oh in the no so she can't because <laughs> oh, of liability yeah but that's how they, <laughs> but, that's how they became, right? but that's how they became known as the toffees
2: that's really funny
0: hey,